You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this installment of our RSAC 365 podcast series. Thank you for tuning in. We have a great podcast lined up for you today, The Geopolitics of Cyber Insecurity, with our guest moderator, Aaron Turner, and guests Gabo Alvarado and Catherine Koleski. Here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Aaron, Gabo, and Catherine and dive into today's topic. Thanks, Casey. Uh, this is Aaron Turner, a longtime RSA conference participant and uh, frequent speaker. It's a pleasure to be joined uh, by Gabo and Catherine today as we talk about China and technology. So I'll ask uh, Gabo first, you know, from your perspective, when we take a look at what's happening with TikTok and Huawei and some of the policy actions that have been taken, are these indicators of what we think is going to be happening when it comes to Chinese technology and what the U.S. government is going to be doing? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank RSA for inviting me to participate in this conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, with regards to your question, Aaron, I think it is pretty safe to say that there continues to be bipartisan consensus with regards to the challenges we face from the People's Republic of China, or PRC. And therefore, businesses and really all sectors of our economy should be prepared for future actions aimed at curbing relevant threats. But potential U.S. actions against the PRC should not be the primary driver for how U.S. businesses respond. It should be the real threat that the PRC presents to their ability to remain competitive and quite simply to survive long term. Now, PRC technology companies actually present a range of threats from data privacy and IP theft to even our governance systems through known efforts to censor speech. That is critical of the PRC. Now, we only mentioned two companies here. The problem and real challenge is that it is not like there are only a handful of entities, right, that the Communist Party of China can leverage for its strategic goals. And you can bet they will identify others as we shut the door on certain entities. As an example, one of the most direct tools that the party has at its disposal are laws that obligate entities to share information with Beijing. And this include entities like Zoom, which I'm always sort of struck at how widely it is still used in the United States to even discuss sensitive topics related to how we should be addressing the, the challenges we face from the PRC. Aaron, I would certainly appreciate, and I imagine our audience would also be interested in hearing your thoughts on the issues with Zoom at some point in this conversation. Yeah, I definitely have some very strong opinions there. Before I dig in, Catherine, you know, what's your take on what's happening relative to U.S. policy and what is happening in the government space against uh, Chinese technology companies today? Yeah, and uh, thanks again for inviting me to participate. I think just to get the formalities out of the way today, the views expressed are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of DIU, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, um, the question about will Chinese technology companies face greater scrutiny in the United States uh, in the coming years, and I would say the short answer is you betcha. 
I would point to three key factors that are driving this shift. And, you know, number one, a number of Chinese companies are playing a much greater role within the U.S. economy as well as the, the global ecosystem. And they're not only playing a larger role, they're playing a larger role in critical infrastructure and critical technologies, Huawei with telecommunications, TikTok is, you know, playing a role with data and this future uh, shift towards this Internet of everything. So there's just going to be a lot more scrutiny in that space. The reason there is going to be a lot more scrutiny on Chinese companies in particular is the CCP's and the Chinese government's push for greater control within these quasi-private firms. And that blurring and the degree of influence and the degree of influence that that could open up or within the U.S. raises a a lot of uh, red flags. Um, Further complicating that, I see China's military civil fusion strategy where it's blurring the lines between commercial and military. It makes it really hard to distinguish which is where. And, you know, for the government where some, some areas might have been easier where it's just purely commercial or purely military, it's becoming a lot more complicated. So, to summarize, I'm expecting a greater deal of U.S. scrutiny on, on Chinese firms ahead, and the degree of that scrutiny is still yet to be decided, but that's what I see going forward. Yeah. Thanks for that perspective. And so, you know, that sort of leads into, you know, when people ask me about why the U.S. government is taking these actions, it really comes down to that lack of separation. When you're dealing with an authoritarian regime that has full control over their society through regulations and their social control mechanisms and terror and all the different things that they use to motivate people to do things in their, in their country, it is concerning to me the level of technology that is being used around the world that they have control over or insight into. So, for example, um, you know, I have children who... You know, they, they live inside of the TikTok generation. And when they ask me about why people like myself are concerned around TikTok is because TikTok has become one of the most powerful and well-trained artificial intelligence engines I've ever seen. And it, it, it proves itself in the way that it addicts young people to interact with the platform. You want to see, uh, I have one daughter who's fascinated with horses, and when she picks up TikTok and starts looking at it, she says she's, she falls down the horse TikTok rabbit hole because any video that looks like a horse to TikTok, it gets categorized and then it gets fed to her and, and she goes down that path. Well, if you take something like a very powerful artificial intelligence engine that has natural language processing, visual processing capabilities, and pair that with a global surveillance platform like Zoom, now you can basically pair every Zoom recording with a TikTok-trained artificial intelligence, and you can train it to go look for conversations where people are talking about formulas, conversations where people are talking about M&A activity in Asia. You know, things that the, the Chinese Communist Party are interested in from either an uh, economic development perspective or an influence operational perspective. And that's what's really concerning to me about why maybe we haven't done enough, right? Maybe we haven't done enough to make people aware of the fact that when they're using these platforms like TikTok and Zoom, they're actually feeding the beast and facilitating the creation of more powerful uh, surveillance and control mechanisms that we need to be uh, careful of. Um, so, you know, in that vein, if we think about the, the geopolitical aspects, Catherine, what, what do you think is going to end up happening relative to 
international interference operations like what happened in Australia earlier this year? That is a great question. One of the things that you're seeing is, you know, the CCP and the Chinese government really pushing to rewrite the rules of the international system. And we see that specifically with cyber sovereignty, which is the ability for the government to control the Internet governance structure. And we see uh, this kind of with Australia, not only with cyber rules, but also we see that China's disinformation effort, um, doctoring a photo of an Australian soldier and then sharing the fake image on Twitter, something that you cannot access in China, and then when Australia responds with, you know, understandably upset about a doctored image showing their military, uh, China has not backed down, but instead escalated their efforts. And now, you know, this is all unfolding right now where, you know, key Australian exports to the Chinese market like wine, lobsters, you know, other products are being blocked at the border. And this represents, you know, political and economic coercion against a key U.S. ally. For me, this is not happening, it's not a one-off occasion, but I think this represents a bellwether for actions China may pursue against other Western democracies. And, you know, beyond that, I, I also think of it as an initial test of U.S. resolve in defending its allies going forward. Yeah, you know, the thing that I think about in that is that you've got a situation where the Chinese have proven that they have no qualms interrupting economics, you know, using cyber means to disrupt uh, the commodities markets in China. And so I think it, it is concerning. Gabo, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna piggyback on what Catherine was saying and, and note that that I do believe that what's happening in the China Australia relationship right now certainly deserves the attention it has been getting, uh, primarily because for me anyway it cements something I have tried to emphasize wherever I can, which is that the PRC seeks to force its ideas on governments onto other countries, and and we've known that they've been wanting and looking to do this for a long time because they have been signaling as much through their community of common destiny for mankind concept, which is something that sounds harmless, right? And like we, you know, we maybe don't need to pay attention to, but in reality, it speaks to a deep-seated desire by the PRC to shape global governance in its image so that it doesn't have to catch flack anymore for its human rights record, just to name one example. Yeah. With one of my consulting customers over the last six months, I've had to help them generate a get-out-of-Hong-Kong plan. And, and it's one of the saddest things I've ever done. Some of my best professional memories of working in a wonderful place with great food and with wonderful people were times that I worked in Hong Kong down there in the business district and, and just enjoying that, that really cool mix of, of culture and business and everything that was in Hong Kong. And and over the last six months, I've had to put together a plan to help them exfiltrate their people, um, where we had to actually create a deception operation to, to get them out of Hong Kong, to get some key staff out of Hong Kong without uh, Hong Kong authorities understanding what was going on. And so, you know, Gobble, from your perspective, how have you seen Western businesses have to change their strategies when it comes to the people they have, the technology they're developing, and their operations in, in greater China? Well, it um, um, reminds me of some recent uh, survey results uh, from the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai that I stumbled upon recently that noted that 
out of, you know, 100 or so company leaders surveyed, just over half said that they are more optimistic about doing business in China following Biden's election win. However, a third of respondents are concerned about potential exit bans and other restrictions on their employees, which speaks, I think, directly to to the concerns you were talking about um, um, just a moment ago, Aaron. And only about 13% or so of respondents intend to actually increase investment in China. So I think what we're likely to see here is heightened caution for those companies that decide to stick it out. I, I do believe that the concerns reflected in the survey are merited. Uh, we talked about safety of employees. I think that's reinforced by the fact that at the recently concluded uh, fifth plenum, we had a lot of references to security. And we're not just talking about economic security. Uh, we're talking national security more broadly to address uh, what the PRC uh, sees as growing internal and external challenges. Thing is, you know, the PRC has a vague definition for national security, right? And it's, it's what they, they're using to justify their crackdown against the Senate in Hong Kong, to go back to your Hong Kong example. Um, and this emphasis should be extremely worrying to businesses, as national security has been used to force foreign companies in China to give authorities access to some sort of data uh, and to justify restrictions on foreign investment in certain sectors of the Chinese economy, not to mention, of course, increased risk of arbitrary detention of foreigners and what have you. Um, the other term that came up a lot as well during the fifth plenum was indigenous innovation. And here, I think it's really important to understand that the PRC defines indigenous innovation very differently from how we might define it in that, you know, for them, indigenous innovation is not innovation without uh, being able to leverage foreign know-how. Actually, if anything, the way indigenous innovation is conceived of in the PRC is that uh, it requires maximizing existing knowledge to include foreign know-how. And so what this should be signaling for business is that, if anything, their risk, uh, their IP risk anyway, IP theft risk, will be much more heightened um, moving forward here. Yeah. I recently had a conversation with one of my consulting customers about whether they should enter China or not. They're a very successful business in digital properties and digital domains, entertainment and different things. And at present, they don't have a, a, a presence over there. And so they asked me to sort of walk their senior executives through what were the risks of, of being successful over there, where they contemplate having their app in Chinese approved app stores and, and doing things, you know, be, becoming part of the digital ecosystem there. And, and the question I asked of the business leadership team was, do you want to become an organ of state security? Because if you do truly reach the market that you want and people are using your applications and a platform to communicate and interact with each other and do different things, you will be asked to become part of the state security uh, mechanism. And that sort of took them aback. They, they viewed it as a simple business decision about should we go and chase Chinese revenue? And I sort of flipped it back and I said, I said no, this isn't about chasing Chinese revenue. This is about do you want to become part of the Chinese state security mechanism? And that sort of, you know, really made them take a step back. Catherine, what, what do you think are certain policies that are going to be impacting Western businesses? 
the Chinese government and the CCP are not backing down on their techno-nationalist strategy. Instead, what we've seen coming out of the fifth plenum, as well as in you know, speeches from CCP chairman Xi Jinping, is a redoubling of this China-centric strategy. And I think one of the big questions, and I, I think you were raising this, is where do foreign firms fit in? You can gain access to this immense you know, potential market but at what terms and, on, and, and at what price? A couple things that I've seen over the last year is China formalizing some of the state control within the economy, whether that's through the export control law that went into force four days ago or the creation of CCP party cells within foreign firms. Um, and that raises concerns about the ability to operate freely within the Chinese market. Um, I, I don't see any of these issue areas becoming less complicated, um, and I think there is a risk of kind of a bifurcation of Western business operations to, you know, deal with, you know, something like data, so customer um, data restrictions, you know, the, it is, the Chinese government has put in a number of uh, restrictions on transferring that data abroad, which limits the ability to really uh, analyze your entire global customer base. So it might become something of a uh, China's operations are operating kind of within its own ecosystem, and then the rest of the world operates within a, a different ecosystem um, to, you know, ensure that the, the data standards and data, you know, the adherence to the regulations are in place. I think that does raise a lot of concerns about just the overall value and the market going forward. And speaking of the market, you know, we think about all of the stuff that we're using, that we use on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, over the, the last year, I've, as I was talking with friends and family, I feel like we're sort of in this compressed time state where we're compressing the pandemic of 1918-1919 with the global economic crisis of 1929 with the, the, um, the potential for global conflict that we saw in, in the late 30s and early 40s. And what kind of is leaning, making me lean that direction is the, what I see about the use of forced labor in China, where, you know, the folks in Western China, the Uyghurs, the, the ethnic groups, the religious groups who are being forced to do things, uh, almost concentration camp style, is what kind of makes me take a step back and go, am I participating in a system that is facilitating the forced labor of people to make the things that I want to use? And so when I go and I read things in the paper like Apple and Nike and other companies supposedly resisting any kind of regulation around uh, preventing the use of slave labor in China, kind of makes me take a step back. So, Catherine, from your perspective, what, what do you think about this situation we find ourselves in where the products we may be using are the result of forced labor? Well, I would take it a step further. It's not just forced labor. Some of the technology and the research that we're developing is being used in surveilling the Chinese population as well. So I think there needs to be a lot more awareness, not only of the supply chains where uh, forced labor can be used you know, to produce products, but also uh, the technology and it being used in um, a computing system that then conducts the surveillance and data analytics against 
the Uyghur population or the Tibetan population. We also have uh, research from U.S. universities where they're assisting with helping with data algorithms or sharing data that is actually not being used maybe for what they think it's being used for or believing that there is an informed consent for the data that was being collected in, for example, Xinjiang. There needs to be a lot more scrutiny and a lot more due diligence. And I, I think it's important to keep in mind that you know, for example, just within Xinjiang, 40% of all elementary and middle school students are being separated from their families and placed in government-run boarding schools. You know, the actions that we're taking, we need to have an understanding of the human impact that that can have. Um, you know, as you were saying, it's not Apple alone receiving this criticism. Some investigations have found NVIDIA and Intel chips being used in certain cloud computing areas. We also have a couple of university professors that have been assisting with some of the processes and, and uh, research going on there. And I just think that it is imperative that U.S. businesses go back to the values that they've committed to and take additional efforts, you know, to understand the context of the environment that they're working on and really raise the bar for those uh, procedures, specifically in Tibet, Xinjiang, and Inner Mongolia. Yeah. You know, you talking about the ethics of technology, uh, there is a really good book out there called IBM and the Holocaust, a thoroughly researched analysis of how IBM technologies were used by the Nazis to uh, facilitate the Holocaust and the rounding up of Jews and all the bad things that happened within Nazi Germany in the 40s. And it kind of makes me wonder, you know, have we created this dual-use technology world where this powerful technology is being used to help facilitate an authoritarian uh, uh, policy that is having real human costs. It's making humans suffer. And, and that's, that's something I've had to take a look at myself to say, am I working with clients? Am I, am I helping to develop technologies and processes that could eventually be used against minority populations in China to make them suffer? And, uh, and, and you would have thought, you know, here we are 80 years later from that situation where IBM helped the Nazis and here we are back again. So, Gabba, what do you think yep. about the, this situation of, of the ethics of using slave labor uh, in China? So I would say we both have touched on the risk of trying to silo certain issues for the purpose of retaining some sort of productive relationship with the PRC, um, and that's specifically technology and human rights. Uh, as Catherine put it, uh, you know, technology plays a huge role in China's surveillance state and in the persecution of minority groups in, in the country. And so it's just really not feasible anymore to try to silo these issues uh, if we're going to address the, the broader challenge in a coherent and uh, effective way. I mean, put another way, a scenario I worry about is that even if we do somehow come to a resolution on things with regards to IP theft and market access reciprocity with the PRC, and that this leads to more sincere cooperation in tech and what have you, that, you know, we, we won't have really addressed the serious human rights concerns that exist in China, which are only probably going to get worse. I mean, that's what we've actually been seeing over the course of the last few years, if not longer, with the Uyghurs 
Uh, I mean, the, the persecution has been ongoing for a long time, and it has uh, culminated in, you know, at least a million estimated Muslim minorities in camps. The question then becomes, will we just sit idly because we've reached agreement on other matters, such as IP, data privacy, and what have you? I, I would think not. Um, but, uh, you know, again, it's more reason to not try to silo issues uh, too finely anyway. And just yeah. to jump and in, U.S. citizens and U.S. businesses are pushing the U.S. government to pursue AI ethics standards. And there is just a, an overall push to make sure we're, we're doing this ethical use of AI to prevent such things as racial discrimination and other you know, negative aspects of it. We cannot silo these issues, uh, and we're seeing, you know, a number of initial efforts to address it's something that we haven't fully wrapped our arms around, and I don't think it's going to be something, it's going to be a constantly evolving process, but it's something that we can't silo. When, when people talk to me about, you know, signing an, an agreement around ethics, the ethical use of technology with um, the Chinese Communist Party, I basically have to look at it and say, you know, how honest have the Chinese government officials been around economics? How honest have Chinese government been around the global health impact right now of what we're dealing with? And so my personal level of trust about anything that they sign around ethics is zero. I don't think there's any way to, to say that they're going to restrain themselves in any meaningful way. Um, but that sort of leads us into the next thing that I want to talk about, which is, you know, if we look to the future, you know, they have these... The communists always have their five-year plans. What do we see on the horizon with the five-year plans coming up? What do you think, Catherine? Right now, we're closing out the 13 five-year plan, um, and one thing that it's demonstrated is the whole-of-government approach that China is taking with economics, with its international push, and military. Um, you know, a couple of economic success stories that have come out from this state-led approach has been uh, new energy vehicles, artificial intelligence, and genomics. I think looking into the 14th five-year plan, they're really going to be accelerating those efforts. And I would see a redoubling of government support, uh, whether that's subsidies, whether that's instituting non-tariff barriers, um, and pushing of China-specific standards and international bodies, some areas that you know, I would say the same areas that you're going to see, semiconductors, artificial intelligence, new energy vehicles. A lot of the effort has focused just domestically in the 13 five-year plan. I think we're going to see a lot more of this push internationally. And a lot of the, you know, companies that they've been trying, the national champions that they've been trying to develop within China, pushing them out internationally and pushing that technology out. Um, since they're not going to be opening up their market or reducing some of these barriers, I think you're going to see a lot more trade tensions with the United States, Japan, European Union. Um, and getting back to some of the what we were discussing with Western businesses, I don't think it's going to be getting easier. Instead, especially if you're in one of the strategic sectors, you know, identified in the 14th five-year plan, you're going to see increased pressure to transfer technology and know-how uh, to domestic competitors and to help build up China's own domestic industry. And that, you know, just raises long-term concerns about competitiveness of your firm if you're giving uh, the technology away or being forced to 
work with your, you know, future competitor. And so I think it's going to be a very interesting next year. Um, and, you know, especially with how the world handles some of this increased tension. Yeah. Gobble, from your perspective, do you think we'll see anything in the next five-year plan about uh, the reintegration of Taiwan back into the greater China that Beijing wants to control? That I'm not sure, to be quite honest. Um, but certainly, you know, if, if Hong Kong serves as an example at all, uh, you know, it, it would seem like the, the trend is trending towards more escalation, right? And in all of that now, does the PRC want to risk a hot war in the next five years? Um, the fact that they speak of there still be uh, sort of a strategic window of opportunity to advance their priorities uh, when they talk about things about the next five-year plan suggests that, you know, maybe hot war is not what they're thinking, but um, are they going to push themselves to really be prepared for such a scenario? And actually, there has been a lot of talk, including by Xi Jinping himself, about the need for the party to get better at fighting and being able to struggle. And so I think that, as an example, a lot of like the more aggressive tact that we're seeing with countries like Australia and what have you might just be, you know, the PRC, you know, learning how to fight, uh, so to speak, as Xi Jinping put it, right? Because the battle, the battle spaces that the PRC fights in, it's, it's not just kinetic, it's economic. It's um, narrative shaping. It's, it's all of the above, really. And so what I would imagine we'll see in the next five years, and there are already early indications of this happening, is they're going to try to take more aggressive tacks, see how others react, see how far what far they can get, right, with, you know, this more aggressive act. But to the extent possible, avoid something like an actual hot war, because I don't think that that's, that's, that's something that... Um, they foresee or, or would really want to risk in the in the next five years, if if that makes sense. As I work with some folks in the technology infrastructure industry, so these are the folks who build factories that make memory chips and make processors and that sort of thing. It's interesting to me to see some of them start to hedge their bets against Taiwan. So. Most people may not know this, but roughly half of the stuff that we use from mobile devices to Alexa to smart TVs or whatever, it depends in some way, shape, or form on components that come from Taiwan. And so it's interesting for me to see at least some long-term thinkers begin to shift certain strategic production capacity to places that don't suffer from the same level of geopolitical uncertainty that Taiwan is suffering from. Uh, and so I think it, it, we at least are seeing some people start to manage their risks in a little bit different way there. But Well, Catherine and Gavin, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, very fascinating conversations. Uh, Casey, anything you'd like to ask us to wrap up? This has just been such a fascinating conversation, and I really appreciate so much the perspective that you all bring to the table and, and eye-opening stuff for people that will hopefully motivate listeners to uh, tap into a little more personal responsibility as well. Um, it's certainly a topic that will continue to evolve in the coming months. Before we do part ways, I'd love 
to hear from each of you any parting words that you have for our listeners. I'll go first. You know, from a long-term perspective, I think the, the main thing that we've got to focus on is if we truly have Western values, you know, Western values of freedom and opportunity and that sort of thing, at what point do we have to provide the level of governance over the way that we interact with the People's Republic of China when it comes to technology and what our businesses are doing there? Like I mentioned earlier in the conversation, when I have a conversation with a, uh, a board of directors of a very successful company, and I'm having to educate them about doing business in China isn't just about getting revenue from China. Doing business in China is making the decision that you are going to become an extension of state security. And do you really want to get into that business? Uh, I think that's going to be the most important thing moving forward. I think just building on what you were saying about about the values is, you know, we are seeing the changing of what are the rules of the international system, you know, economically, technologically, militarily. And, you know, this ranges from the role of the state in the private sector, which was heavily debated, you know, in the 1950s, um, leading to OECD trying to, uh, you know, negotiating a lower role of the state. Those topics are now up for debate again. We also see it in the governance in emerging areas, you know, that ranges from AI, we see it in space, cyber, uh, the use of autonomous weapons, all of those areas. Um, and then you throw into, you know, the territorial claims um, in the South China Sea. We've also seen, you know, kind of a increase in tensions along the India-China border. All of these things that, you know, may have had a dare I say, a detente or kind of a, a specific trajectory, that's no longer assured. And the thing that I want to come, you know, for people to come away with is, you know, how the United States and other governments, as well as businesses and citizens, act in response to the, this changing environment is going to profoundly shape the world that we're going to live in and specifically what businesses are going to need to do to adapt to remain competitive. And so I think those are my parting thoughts. I thought I would leave uh, everybody with is that there is a school of thought out there that we need to take it easier on the PRC to avoid major escalation and even war. I would caution that by not addressing the real concerns that we've covered in this conversation and others that, that we face now, that we effectively end up bottling those up. The thing is that these issues won't just magically go away and they'll just nag at us and fester until one day they come bursting out in a fit of anger and frustration. Uh, that's where I think the risk lies uh, because, you know, one is less likely to make thoughtful and strategic decisions required of the situation at that point. And that's the conundrum of the ethical dilemma, right? Aaron, Gabo, Captain, thank you so much for joining us today. This has really been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to share with us your thoughts. Uh, listeners, thank you for joining us. Please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC, and be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year-round. Also, subscribe to the RSAC podcast on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app, and stay tuned for our next podcast. Thank you all. Be well.